Well, hello, everybody. My name's Amy Foster. I'm part of your teaching team here for Women in the Word. And every time we get together, I honestly think there's no place else in the world I'd rather be than here with you. So thanks for coming today. Thanks for studying with us. And special welcome to our friends at the West Campus. We love that you're doing the same study with us at the same time because we're all part of God's church together. So that's a great privilege. What we've been studying in the book of Acts so far is really the story of a major transition in the way God interacts with the world. And one thing I know, it's that transitions can be tricky and they can be difficult. And if you don't believe that, I want you to think back on a major transition in your life. I want you to think about your time as an adolescent, 12, 13, 14 years old, and tell me that wasn't tricky. You know, everything's changing when you're an adolescent or when you're raising an adolescent. Um, Your thought processes change. Your ability to reason changes. Definitely your normal emotional responses, they all change, don't they? The old coping skills of childhood don't work anymore. You haven't quite learned the new coping skills. Everything's tricky, and it makes life pretty unstable, sometimes even vulnerable and dangerous. So we know transitions are tricky for people. Transitions are also tricky for governments and for nations and for institutions and for churches. They're all tricky. Some would even say that when a government or a country is experiencing a transition, they're vulnerable, it's dangerous. They would say, don't go there, stay away until the transition is complete and peace reigns. And we know we've seen that in several countries in the last few years who've tried to transition to freedom. Well, the ancient world was in a time of great transition when the book of Acts was written. And it was a transition that would be acutely experienced by the nation of Israel and by the followers of Jesus Christ before the nation of Israel had served as God's witness nation. And by God's design, a special group of people would live in a special relationship with him, and they would demonstrate to the world the blessings that come from being in a relationship with him. But now God is interacting differently with the world, and now God's church would fulfill that role, not as God's witness nation, but as God's witness people. A group of people that would include different nationalities and different races, and it would include Jews, and it would include Gentiles, and it would be a people group that would be made up of everyone who places their faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. The transition would not be an easy one, and that's really some of the difficulty we've seen as we've studied the book of Acts. Last week, we studied that Paul had resolutely proceeded to Jerusalem. He'd finished his third missionary journey, and along this journey, as he's visiting churches, he's taking their offerings, their contributions that are to go back to the struggling church in Jerusalem. And Paul has made it very clear his desire is to go back to Jerusalem to take those offerings and that financial assistance there and to teach them and to encourage them and to really bind them together in unity with all the other New Testament churches. But Paul is also very clear, the Holy Spirit's impressed upon him when he gets back to Jerusalem, that difficulty will await him, that imprisonment and persecution would find him there. It seems the pains of transitions would follow him also. And these transition pains are not new when he gets to Jerusalem. They've actually been following the new church and the new believers everywhere. The first transition pains began with the persecution of Stephen. 
Then we saw transition pains with all the doctrinal disputes that kept popping up following new believers and new churches. A few weeks ago, we discussed that riotous mob at Ephesus where the entire city came out in an angry, crazy mob as a response to the transition. Last week, we read about the mob that was found in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem that seized Paul, drug him outside, and tried to kill him. And then we saw Paul defend himself, and they listen quietly until he utters the word Gentiles. And he suggests that God's new people group would have Gentiles in it. And all kinds of craziness ensued. It tells us that the crowd was screaming for Paul's death, that they were wildly taking off their cloaks and waving them in the air, that they were scooping up dust and sand and throwing it in the airs, that they were trying to find rocks to stone him. If you are an objective bystander in Jerusalem watching all of this, you would surely think the world has gone mad. It was absolute madness over and over and over again. And the truth is the Jewish world was going mad and it was out of control. They were transitioning from the time of Israel to the time of Jesus and his church. And it was not an easy transition for anyone. The Jews were having trouble with the transition, and honestly, the Roman world was having trouble with the transition also. One of the things that was most highly valued by the Roman government was peace, Roman peace. And you hear that talked about all the time. Civil order was highly valued. Great efforts were exerted to maintain it. That's why in all of these cities and all of these places, there's always the presence of Roman military and Roman rulers and Roman officers. They were expected to maintain the peace. That was particularly challenging because you have to remember the Roman Empire existed because Rome had come through and conquered all these different and diverse people groups. And as they conquered them, they knit them together as the Roman Empire, but they didn't make them all Roman citizens. They all remained uniquely diverse and different. And to combine all these under Roman rule and Roman authority, that was difficult. And it was the charge of the Roman leadership to maintain peace in all that diversity. One historian said this, A riot in the Roman Empire was an unthinkable sin, both for the populace who staged it and for the commander who allowed it. That's how highly they valued peace. So we see the Jewish leadership and the people are out of control. They're really being driven by resistance and racial pride. And you also see the Roman authorities are out of control. They can't maintain this Roman peace that's so important to them. But what we see in Acts is it does look like the world has gone mad. But in the midst of that madness, God's plan prevails. We keep seeing these pictures of God's plan and then we keep seeing God advancing his plan brilliantly. We're going to begin today at the very end of chapter 23, 22, excuse me. But this really is picking up in the middle of a story, so I want to remind you what we talked about last week, where we are in the story. Paul has been detained by the Roman Tribune in Jerusalem because of that mob that began in the temple complex trying to kill Paul. Initially, Paul was arrested and chained. The Tribune couldn't figure out what was going on and why the Jews were so angry. He actually mistakes Paul for an Egyptian fugitive. Then Paul sets him straight, and he understands his mistake. The Tribune still can't figure out what the problem is, so he orders that Paul be scourged. We talked about this last week. It was a brutal form 
form of torture designed to, to get him to confess to something. It was illegal to scourge a Roman citizen, which Paul was. So at the most opportune moment, Paul reveals his Roman citizenship and stops that process. So the tribune quickly realizes how out of control he is. He's arrested and chained a Roman citizen. He's mistaken him. He has ordered him scourged, which is a violation of the law. The tribune is actually in big trouble if his superiors figure out how out of control he is here in Jerusalem. So that's where we begin. Start with me in chapter 22, verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound Paul and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul answered, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Okay, I think it's important to point out this is not a formal trial or a formal session of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling authority, the ruling body. They had their own location. They had a hall that they regularly met in. This was a meeting called together by the Roman Tribune, um, and he is trying to determine what the Jewish charge is against Paul. And Paul begins the meeting defending himself and claiming that he has lived his life in all good conscience. The actual words there um, are more like he has been faithful in his conduct toward God. Faithful toward God. And I think we have to look at that for a minute and say he's, he's not saying that he's sinless and he's not saying that he's perfect. One thing I love about Paul, he always includes in his testimony his former life opposing God. In his other writings, he's very forthcoming about the fact that he still struggles as an imperfect human being. He's simply responding to the specific charges that they have filed against him. And those charges were that Paul had sinned against the Jewish people, that he had violated the Jewish law, and that he had violated or desecrated the temple. And he's saying, regarding these charges, I've been faithful in my conduct towards God. Up to this day, I've been faithful. And I think he could say that with a totally clear conscience because you have to remember, what did God ask Paul to do? The resurrected Jesus had appeared to Paul and said, you are going to be my instrument. You are going to proclaim my name to Jews and to Gentiles. And Paul had been faithful. We've watched these three missionary journeys. We've read about how he has proclaimed the name of Jesus in Asia and Syria and Galatia and Macedonia and Cyprus. And now back here in Jerusalem, that's what he's doing. Paul has been obedient to the declared will of God in his life. And because of that, his conscience is clear. And what we see here is that a clear conscience brings peace. In the midst of all this madness, Paul is experiencing peace. Listen to what he writes um, in 2 Corinthians. This is on your verse sheet, 2 Corinthians 1.12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. 
in the midst of all this madness and mayhem and turmoil, there's like a little pocket of peace, and it's surrounding Paul, and it's the peace that comes from a clear conscience. So in a world gone mad, God, bring, excuse me, God brings peace to those who obediently follow him. That's what we're seeing and for me personally, I am comforted by this application that God brings peace into the madness in our lives and the difficult circumstances, that God's peace is available if we will just be obedient to him, following his direction, keeping our conscience clear. We all want peace, don't we? I can remember a difficult time in my life when the circumstances were totally out of control, when other people were making decisions that were having a huge impact on me and my family. And I would sit on my porch every morning and I would pray and I would beg God, show me how to get control of these circumstances. Show me how to control these events to get the outcome that I think is right. And every morning God was faithful and he met me in my prayer time, but he never told me how to get control of my circumstances. Very quietly and very gently, every morning on my porch, the still, small voice of God says, No, Amy, you get control of you. You get control of you. You just obey me day after day, moment after moment. You choose obedience to me. You leave the circumstances to me. That was a bit of a hard swill, uh, pill to swallow, but I really learned something important that day. The truth is I didn't have control over any of those circumstances, and I never would. But I did have one thing in my whole life that I could control, and it was would I be obedient to God? No matter how crazy things are, you have total control over that. Will you choose obedience? And the truth is right here, God has told us what he wants us to do. And he's given us the freedom to choose. And so we get to choose if we will be obedient. And we control that aspect of our life moment by moment, day after day, decision after decision. And when we choose obedience, we choose peace. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. That's the peace we say, uh, see displayed here in Paul. Well, the high priest doesn't like that Paul is displaying peace. He doesn't like it one bit. Uh, some believe that he doesn't, it's not so much that he's offended that Paul claims a clear conscience as much as he's just offended by Paul's peaceful state. This particular high priest, his name was Ananias. He was known for cruelty and greed and corruption and violence. He was actually violently murdered by his own people a few years later. Um, he was known for wielding such oppressive power among the Jews that he even wanted everyone who appeared before him to be quaking in fear. So many believe that his, the reason he was so angry at Paul in this moment was because Paul was displaying peace. He orders Paul to be struck, and the word struck there doesn't mean a slap on the face like we would think. It means a brutal blow or perhaps a beating. And for a brief moment, we see Paul lose his peace just a little bit. It seems like he gets angry here. He calls the high priest a whitewashed wall, suggesting that he's evil and corrupt on the inside, but on the outside he's covering it all up and pretending like he's righteous. 
This was an expression that Jesus had used as he was confronting many of the members of the Sanhedrin also. You can look at Matthew 23 later today and see Jesus really condemning some of the religious leaders and using that same expression, whitewashed wall. In Matthew 23, 28, Jesus says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And the lawlessness that he's calling the high priest out for in this moment, there were specific laws that protected a, a person from being punished or beaten or scourged or anything like that before they'd been proven guilty. There were specific Jewish laws that prescribed order in these court proceedings so that people would receive a fair trial. And the high priest is showing his hypocrisy by immediately violating all of those laws while he's trying Paul for uh, supposed violations of the law. Well, the people around him immediately call Paul out on this because he shouldn't be talking to the high priest in such a manner. Um, Paul defends himself and says, I didn't know he was the high priest. And he immediately regrets his decision and backs it up and shows some humility and some remorse here. I think we can take him at face value that he really didn't know this was the high priest. And there are a couple good reasons for that. It wasn't a formal meeting of the Sanhedrin. So that means they weren't in the Sanhedrin's hall. The high priest would not have a special position or a special elevated bench or seat to sit on in this location. He probably also would not be wearing his high priestly clothes, the regalia that would really identify him as the high priest. And it's also been several years since Paul has been in Jerusalem and the position of high priest has changed in that time. So it's totally possible that Paul did not recognize him as the high priest. But when he does, he regains his peace by stepping right back into obedience and he says God has ordered us to respect this position and so he's going to respect the position of the high priest because it's ordained by God even when the person in the position is not acting respectably he steps right back into obedience and he regains his peace and his composure I think that's a really important thing uh, for us to see. Now let's read on and see how this continues to sort of devolve into more madness. Kind of look for this theme of madness as we talk about the next events, uh, beginning in chapter 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. All right. Madness ensues. When I first read this little account, I thought, oh, it, it looks like Paul's just trying to divide their focus and their attention and take the attention off of himself. 
We've already told you, if you're unfamiliar with this, the Sanhedrin was this Jewish ruling authority. The Sanhedrin had two political parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they had different theological positions and they had different political positions. And so at first, it looks like Paul's just trying to take the focus off of himself and divide them. But I don't really think that's what he's doing. I think Paul is shifting the emphasis off of himself. And I think he's shifting it right onto the hope of the gospel. That's what he's doing when he brings up the resurrection here. He's testifying one more time to the gospel in front of these powerful leaders of Israel. And I thought it was interesting. I don't know if you noticed. It says he has to cry out, I'm a Pharisee. So they're already in this boisterous, riotous mayhem before he even starts this argument. It's so out of control, he has to shout to be heard here to say that he is a Pharisee. Um, You see, the Sadducees had never believed in angels or spirits or any kind of resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And actually, belief in the resurrection was part of the ancient faith of Israel. It had been present from the beginning, and the first description we have of it comes with Abraham. Do you remember Abram had the long-awaited son, Isaac? And when God asks him to put Isaac on the altar... Abraham does it, believing that if it was God's will, he could resurrect Isaac from the dead. We see from Abraham that it was the ancient part of their faith believed in the resurrection, hoped in the resurrection. We can look at the words of David. He believed in the resurrection. We can look at the words of the prophet. He believed in the resurrection. This was a key part of the faith of Israel, and God put it there so that that hope and resurrection could one day be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So believing in the resurrection was key to believing in the gospel, and that's the shift in the focus that Paul's taking here. So this is just my opinion, but I don't think it was a divisive tactic at all. I think it was Paul looking out at that audience and seeing the Sadducees and sad thinking their hearts are hardened. But he looks at the Pharisees and he says, they believe in the resurrection. We can tap into that belief in the resurrection and attach it to belief in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And the same way Paul begins every other sermon where he starts with their common ground, what they all believe in together, he does it here and he's preaching to the gospel to the Pharisees, beginning with their belief in the resurrection. Because believing in the resurrection is everything. We saw this from the very beginning. The day the church began at Pentecost, Peter preaches in Acts 2.32, and he focuses on the resurrection. And this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And all of the apostles, when they tell the gospel story, they focus on the resurrection of Jesus. So we need to stop for a minute and remind ourselves why is the resurrection important Why is that such a key piece to the gospel message today? In this day, there were many people who said, well, Jesus was just a good man. He was a good teacher, and he was a good prophet, but he was a man. And we hear that today, don't we? I hear it all the time. Jesus was a good teacher, but just a man. But the truth is, if someone is just a man, and they die claiming to pay for the sins of the world, and they remain dead then they haven't paid for the sins of the world and they're just a good man. But if someone claims to be the son of God who can take away the sins of the world and they are killed and they are resurrected from the dead, then the resurrection is the proof. 
It's the proof that they're not just a man. They are the son of God. And it's the proof that their sacrifice was sufficient, that our sins have been paid for. That's why the resurrection was everything. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That is a description of no hope, absolutely no hope. But listen to Romans 6, 9. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. That's a picture of total hope. We don't know how this turned out on this particular day if any of these Pharisees chose to put their faith and their trust in the resurrected Jesus Christ. But we know that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. And we know that Jesus was the fulfillment of that hope. Um, I think it's interesting to note that in the scriptures, we do see instances where people who were members of the Pharisaic party and, and scribes of the Pharisees, they did believe in Jesus and they joined the New Testament church. And I believe that happened because they began with the hope of the resurrection. But another sad but interesting note, there is no example in our scripture of a Sadducee who ever joined God's people whoever believed in Jesus Christ. So if you wonder why the resurrection is important, that's why it's important. In a world gone mad, God brings hope to those who believe in the resurrected Jesus Christ. It says a great clamor arose. It could be described as yet another riotous proceeding, another mob mentality. One historian described it, it was like a roar of wild voices from Israel's most dignified leaders. That seems incongruous, doesn't it? Uh, roaring voices from dignified leaders. The madness escalated to the point that they literally feared Paul would physically be torn to pieces. Okay, crazy, out-of-control environment. It was madness. The Roman leadership can't keep the peace. They can't settle this dispute. They can't protect the Roman citizen. And so once more, they drag him up the stairs. He's not officially a prisoner, but they keep putting him in protective custody in the barracks. This is a major turning point in the history of the world. The majority in Jerusalem had already rejected Jesus. They'd rejected Stephen They'd rejected John, and in this moment, they fully reject Paul and his gospel message. This is Jerusalem's final key rejection of the gospel. Jews would continue to have opportunities to hear the gospel and believe, but the place of Jerusalem, this is their final rejection. In God's plan to build his witness people, his church, Jerusalem had been center stage at the beginning at Pentecost when, when the church was birthed. But for the next stage, Jerusalem would not be center stage. Rome would be center stage. And this is the turning point. And we know from history that just eight years later, Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And by that time, Rome was the center of Christianity. So God was not surprised by that. He knew it was happening and he was moving things toward Rome all along. All right, we've ended with this riotous scene. Paul's about to be torn to pieces limb by limb. They drag him up the stairs. Listen to what happens next, verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
Paul experiences the presence of Jesus under guard in the barracks of the Roman officials. This is not the first time he experiences the presence of Jesus. Actually, Acts tells us of six different visions that God has, uh, excuse me, that Paul has where God speaks directly to him. Each time it's at a critical transition time in his ministry. And this one is certainly critical as Paul might be wondering what kind of madness is coming next? He probably thinks he's seen it all and then something new um, breaks out of control. Up to this point, Paul had repeatedly stated his desire to go to Rome, but I believe he was anticipating going to Rome on a missionary journey as a free missionary. And now he is held almost like a prisoner in Roman custody. Now the Jews want him dead and seem to be uh, determined not to stop. So it is a critical time time in his ministry. Jesus himself stands by him and gives him this very clear direction. Take courage. Take courage, Paul. I love that he commends Paul for the way he's testified in Jerusalem. It's like he's saying, well done. You did exactly what I wanted you to there in Jerusalem, and now you're done. And then he tells him, God has a divine plan for you that is not finished. You're going to go to Rome, and you're going to testify the exact same way there. So he both commends him for what is laid in the past, and then he encourages him for what is coming in the future. And over all of it, he says, take courage. And I love that the instruction was take courage. It wasn't, hey, muster up some courage within yourself. It wasn't dig deep, find some courage, be courageous. It was take courage. And for me, I have this visual of the courageous Savior is standing behind, beside him saying, courage is here. Just hold on to it. Courage is right here in your Savior. Take it and hold it tight because you need it. God had a plan to proclaim the gospel in Rome because Rome was the center of influence and power, and he assures Paul that he is going to Rome, but he was going more as a prisoner, not a free missionary, and he would actually endure two long years imprisoned before he would depart, so Paul would need courage to endure, and it was a courage that would be forever available to him because Jesus would stay beside him. And that is a beautiful picture for me because our reality is the same. Courage is ours for the taking as long as we stay with Jesus, as long as we stay in his presence and keep him at our side. In a world gone mad, God brings courage in the presence of Jesus. It was true for Paul and it's true for us today. I loved, I immediately had a, a memory of the story of the disciples when they were out on the Sea of Galilee and a huge storm was raging and they were fearful for their lives and they see Jesus walking on the water and they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified. And in both gospel accounts, it says the same thing. Jesus says, um, take heart, it is I do not be afraid. When Jesus came into the scary circumstances, he brought courage with him. And the same is true for us. There is no fear when Jesus is at our side. It's a beautiful reality for those of us who believe. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. It was true for Paul. It's true for us. No matter what kind of madness you're living in in your world, 
courage is available because Jesus never forsakes you. I don't know what your madness might look like. Maybe a friend or a loved one betrays you. Maybe a word from the doctor's office frightens you and looks like an uncertain future. Maybe a child that you've loved and raised has a period of time as a prodigal. Maybe your heart is aching. I don't know, but I do know this. If we choose in faith to believe that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us, then he's by our side and his courage is available to us all the time. Sometimes it's hard to hold on to that faith and courage, so we do whatever we need to do to hold on to it. I keep this little index card in my journal, and you can't see it, but I'll just tell you it's, it's all wobbledy and watermarked. And there's a Bible verse written on it, but the ink is completely faded. You, you can't tell what it is, but I can. And the reason I can for about four years, this very card was taped to my bathroom mirror right at eye level so that every morning as I began the day, I could have a reminder that God was with me. And so that every day at the end of the day, my last thought was God is with me. And on this card was Isaiah 41.10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. These are God's words, and they are true, and in faith, we need to do whatever we need to do to keep God's words in front of us and believe that courage is available. God had a plan, and he was working it out in Paul's life, but men had their own plans. Men had some schemes. We're going to read about those. Begin reading with me in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat or drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. All right, the schemes of man, 40 Sadducees have conspired to kill Paul, and their plan is they're going to bring him all the way across the temple grounds, not in this area below the barracks where they've been meeting, but to the hall of the Sanhedrin across the temple grounds. And at some point as he's traversing that ground, one of these 40 assassins is going to kill him. They would conspire with other Sadducees, with the chief priests, and with the elders. They would lie and manipulate the rest of the council and even to the Roman government. 
they would violate at least two of God's specific commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And they would do all of things choosing open criminality in order to punish Paul for allegedly violating the law. It was absolute madness, but it was revealing that hatred had completely blinded their hearts and their minds. But God's plan would prevail. God would use the most unlikely of people to foil this plot. Who knew Paul had a nephew in the scriptures? We don't learn anything about Paul's extended family. But here we learn he has a young nephew who happens to be in Jerusalem and happens to learn of this plot. So we see this uh, almost comical sequence of events. The nephew goes to Paul and reveals it. Paul turns to the centurion who's guarding him and demands that the nephew go to the tribune. The nephew uh, reports to the tribune, and this is where it got kind of humorous to me, that this young, unnamed nephew of Paul the prisoner, that's how they've described him, finds himself advising the powerful tribune of Jerusalem. Did any of you notice He's young, he has to be taken by the hand, but how boldly he says, don't be persuaded by them. He's telling the tribune of Jerusalem what to do. This is the most powerful Roman official in Jerusalem. He has the entire armed forces of Jerusalem, a thousand soldiers under his charge and direction. And Paul's young nephew is telling him what to do. It's just comical to me. It reminded me, you know, I've shared with you I have three sons. I have this hysterical memory of my oldest son coming to me one day and with his hands on his hips telling me, I don't know what we're going to do about them, my brothers. You and I need to talk about what we're going to do about them. (laughs) Well, that's comical. This is on a whole other scale that Paul's unnamed nephew is advising the tribune. But that's what he does here. The tribune has his own selfish motives, his own scheme that he needs to work out here. He needs to avoid an embarrassing riot, an embarrassing confrontation with the Jew. He needs to avoid endangering a free Roman citizen. These things will reflect very poorly on him. He needs to conceal the fact that he doesn't have control over Jerusalem and that he's made some significant errors so far. God will use all his selfish, self-promoting motives to accomplish his purpose. And we see the tribune formulating a plan. Read in verse 23 this plan. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then he writes a letter to the governor explaining why he's sending Paul. I'm not going to read that letter because you've already... Um, read it. Here's what's interesting to me. You know, history doesn't look real favorably on this tribune or on his good judgment, and this experience sort of highlights that a little bit. It's a secret escape. He tells the nephew, don't tell anyone. A secret escape with 470 soldiers. <laughs> First, he says, we'll get to the first 200 soldiers. These are the elite legionnaires. That means they are the most heavily armed of all of Jerusalem's soldiers. Now, I'm thinking if it's a secret mission, there'd be five special ops in all black clothes, right? Not 200 of the most heavily armed. Then we add 70 horses because we know how quietly horses move down cobblestone streets, right? Then we add 200 more, the spearmen. They're also heavily armed, not quietly. 
quite as heavily as the legionnaires. So we have almost half of the entire fighting force in Jerusalem sneaking Paul out at 9 o'clock at night. History just doesn't make this tribune look like the smartest guy in the world. He's sending Paul to Caesarea to Felix, who's the governor of Syria. It might look like he's pursuing the best interest of Paul, but the historians are pretty uh, clear. He's dumping a bad case. He's dumping a troublesome case that he cannot solve on his own. His motives are not full of uh, benevolence towards Paul. It's simply getting this out of his jurisdiction. So God uses all of these motives to move Paul out. And it's a beautiful picture of the sovereign hand of God. Uh, This tribune does himself no favors with this letter that he writes. He really manipulates the facts and covers up his wrongdoings, failing to mention all of his errors along the way, simply giving the appearance that he has nobly rescued a Roman citizen. There's really only one thing that's accurate in his letter. He says, Paul has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Paul's conscience is clear. That's the accurate part of this letter. So the picture that we have at this point in the story is a picture of powerlessness. We've got the Jews who are powerless to carry out their schemes. We've got the Roman leadership powerless to control the mob in Jerusalem, powerless to protect this citizen. But just like a little pocket of peace that followed Paul around, there's a big pocket of power following him around also. You really see it as you see him escorted. Let's begin reading in verse 31. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with Paul. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded Paul to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. I loved this picture of Paul the prisoner being escorted out of Jerusalem with all the Roman power on his side. It was a picture of the sovereign hand of God working through the most unlikely people to bring about his plans. We know that they left at 9 o'clock at night, and by the next morning they had arrived at Anapatris. This is a military fort. It's about 42 miles away. So they were moving very quickly with 470 people to make it by the next day. At that point, they assume they're out of harm's way, so they let the soldiers go back to Jerusalem, and the horsemen continue on, and they escort Paul all the way to Caesarea. The interesting thing to me when you think about this, Rome was 1,360 miles away from Jerusalem, and the Roman armed forces have just escorted Paul with great power and great protection and great might the first 70 miles of the journey toward Rome being used by God without their even knowing it. In a world gone mad and powerless, true power rests with God. That's really what we see here. On your verse sheet, Psalm 62:11 says, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And Isaiah 40:29 says, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And I thought, just like me, sitting on my porch, assuming I could control the circumstances, the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders are assuming that they have power. 
But the scriptures make it very clear. Power is God's. It is God's, and he dispenses it where he chooses in order to accomplish his plans. We see that over and over again in the scriptures, and we see it now. So because that is true, that all power is God's, we don't need to worry about what men will do to us. We don't need to worry about circumstances that are out of our control. We don't have to worry about any of that because God is standing by waiting to give his power away. Now, he doesn't usually give it to the mighty and the strong. He usually gives it to the weak. He gives it to the people who want God's will. He gives it to the people who are asking for God's plan to prevail. And ladies, I'm just here to tell you in my own life, that usually comes in a place of great weakness. It usually comes when my back is against the wall, when I know I can't control the circumstances, when I am absolutely worn out from trying. And in a powerless place, when I've exhausted all my personal resources, I say, okay, God, I want what you want. I want your will. And that is the prayer that never fails, my friends. That's the moment when God's power enters and he begins working his will in your life. And it is a powerful moment. It's a prayer of surrender and weakness. And God is always faithful. I love that we have the example in 2 Corinthians of Paul struggling with something in his life and begging God to take away these circumstances. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, God answers him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power regularly enters human weakness and promotes God's plan. We see that here, and we see it in our own lives. So Paul is presented to the governor, Felix. The governor asks him some questions. He's just determining if this case actually falls within his jurisdiction or if he can dump it somewhere else too. Paul tells him he's from Tarsus of Cilicia. That's a free city. That means there's no Roman ruler over that city. So this case will remain with Felix. So he orders Paul to be held in custody until the Jews arrive there to make their case. Paul would remain not guilty, but guarded. He would remain not officially a prisoner, but in tight military custody. And he would remain in Caesarea under those conditions for two years. During that time, he would experience the peace that comes from obedience to God's will. He would experience the courage that comes from Christ's constant presence. And he would experience the power of God, protecting God's message and God's messenger and God's plan all along. Peace, courage, power, hope, they are all God's. They are all available to us, just like they were to Paul. And it all depends on how we respond to the hope of the resurrection. That really is the key on which all of this hinges. That's why Paul could be encouraged, because he believed Jesus was not just a man. He was God's holy son who died on the cross and was resurrected and forever conquered sin and death. You can take these things too. You can be encouraged if you resist the lie that Jesus was just a man and you accept that he is the resurrected son of God who came to save you. You can hold on to peace and courage and power and you can have total confidence that God will accomplish his plans in your life. It's a great hope. Let's pray. God, you are good and merciful and powerful and strong and we thank you for showing us in your ancient history, how you have demonstrated this in the world, and we thank you that you demonstrate this in each one of our lives today. We thank you and we praise you 
So we thank you that you didn't send just a man, you sent your holy son, and that he was powerful over sin and death. And we thank you that we're part of your witness people and part of your church. And we thank you that that your peace and your courage and your strength is available to each of us, Lord. We ask that your will be done in each of our lives. We ask for the grace to accept your will. And we ask that you would be glorified and honored and praised in all that we do. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.